welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review kindly. This show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. This is the last conversation for 2020. I cannot believe that it is the 29th of December. Crazy, crazy times. I'm wishing everybody that celebrates Christmas, I hope that you had a wonderful Christmas with the people that you wanted to spend it with. For everybody, I'm wishing you a happy new year that's coming up and I am going to have a little break. So the next conversation will be out on the 12th of Jan, so two weeks off for me. This conversation with Nathan Vandermond is a great conversation. He has had really interesting experiences in education, originally as a secondary teacher, now in primary. He's worked for the Department of Education and I literally reached out to him on Instagram. He sent me his phone number. We had a conversation as if we were colleagues in a staff room it just flowed. There was nothing awkward about it. We agreed on a lot of things regarding education. And due to his experience, he actually has some really insightful things to offer about the inner workings of the department and what kind of roles there are in the department outside of purely being a classroom teacher. And so I think that those parts of the conversation for me especially were really interesting because I actually didn't know some of the things that he tells me in this conversation. If you don't know who Nathan Vandermont is, he is a just really generous and inspiring educator. He's on Instagram. I'll put his information in the show notes. So go check him out because he really is just a nice guy, a great educator, very, very passionate. And I think he just wants what's best for the students and what's best for education in general. And I just love teachers like that out there. This is a long conversation because I do sometimes try and edit to keep it to the hour and I just couldn't because there wasn't much in here that I wanted to keep from you guys really. I think that everything he says and wherever the conversation went was an important place for it to go. So strap yourselves in. Hopefully some of you are going on some great road trips over this holiday break and you can just either pop it on in the car or have your headphones in and, you know, split it over a couple of listens if you need to, but it's a really, really good episode. So as I said before, happy new year to all of you. Thank you again for being here. If you like this episode, please share it, follow along with the show, rate and review it. And thank you again from the bottom of my heart for being here to my guests, to my listeners, to people sharing what they've loved, my the people following me on Instagram. I'm so, so grateful for you and well done everyone for getting to the end of 2020. Hi Nathan, how are you? I am great. I'm very good. I'm like excited and nervous. (laughs) Be excited, be excited. Okay. I'd like to start with asking you about what kind of student you were at school. I'm sure you would believe this, but I was very academic, like I really loved school 
in particular, I saw school as sort of a way out, I guess, of, yeah. of where I was growing up. I grew up in the outer east, in the southeast, pretty rough kind of neighborhood. And school wasn't necessarily valued by a lot of my peers, but I was lucky enough to have parents who really valued education. And I read a lot and I just loved learning. And so, yeah, I just saw it as a sort of a ticket out of where I was and where I wanted to be and where I wanted to go. And so, yeah, I just loved, loved it, loved pretty much every subject. And I was that kid who went to high school when everyone was um, sort of talking about how they hated it or they just wanted to get out or how much longer do I have to do this? I was the kid who was like, I get to do, like I'm doing darkroom photography one minute and the next session I'm like cooking and I'm learning something new about how to use a gas stove and then I'm heading off to PE and learning like Gaelic football. I'm like this is when again in my life am I going to get to do this? Never. So I just, yeah, I've always loved it. How do we teach kids the appreciation in the moment? I'm really interested in that because I look back in hindsight often and think, God, I should have appreciated that more. And yet you're telling me in the moment in school, you actually understood how good it was. I'm not saying definitely not every moment of every day. (laughs) Definitely (laughs) moments like particularly if, you know, maths was an area where I was, I was good at it. And I, because I was academic and my parents really supported me at home, I often found success quickly. And so I would try something new or do a new subject and I'd most more than likely be good at it quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was when I started getting into some maths that I didn't understand straight away or whatever, that really frustrated me because I hadn't had the experience of like that, that learning pit and it really needed to learn that process. And that wasn't something that anyone explained to me when I was at school. It wasn't something mm-hmm. you weren't metacognitive in 2001. No one was, I don't think. Yep. <laughs> uh, at least I wasn't. But yeah, I think even though there were moments I didn't like it, I still tried to look for, I look for, you know, things that I could do. But I think that's also partly like my sister is disabled, like she's got cerebral palsy mm-hmm. um, from birth. She's in a wheelchair. She's blind in one eye. She can't walk. So I think that my whole life has been yeah, a big part of, well, look what you get to do. Look at all the things you get to do. What, what's the excuse really that you mm. have for not doing something or, or complaining? I certainly couldn't complain at home yes. <laughs> about yes. anything. So, yeah. yeah, I think you just learn to just do it. But, um, Is your sister yeah. older or younger? She's older. She's 13 years older than me. Oh, wow. And so that relationship provided you some real perspective yeah, definitely, definitely. But I think, yeah, so having that perspective then you're at school, yeah, I don't know how you kind of encourage students. I, I definitely, when I was teaching high school, I spoke to students about it, definitely spoke to them about, you know, the mm. importance of, of learning and, you know, education and how big a deal it was. But, I mean, I'm sure yeah. my teachers were doing that to everyone in the room too and not everyone was <laughs> paying attention. Yeah, listening. Yeah. And so what teachers did you have that really made an impact on you? Yeah, this was a good question. This is like, I definitely have very fond memories of primary school because you just are with those teachers for such a long period of time. I remember grade Mm -hmm. one in particular being a really formative year and I loved the classroom. I loved the way it looked. I loved how much effort my teacher would put into everything she did. But In terms of teachers who really stood out, it's more my secondary school teachers. I had a couple of teachers because, like I said, I went to a pretty rough school in a pretty rough area of Melbourne. I had a lot of teachers who probably found it really hard because behaviour was a massive issue. 
So a lot of them were sort yeah. of just very content driven and they were just about getting the information out and trying to put out spot fire. So a lot of the attention and time went to behavior rather than the actual teaching. But I did have some teachers who, because they were so good, the class behaved differently for them. And we just sort of yeah. had that respect for them. And then what I learned from them was by showing that you really care about your students, your students respond really well to that. Like I had a teacher in year 11 and 12 for science who, you know, I remember her just, you know, taking time out of her lunch or time all the, you know, all the time and helping us to improve or understand a certain concept. And, you know, she'd be just eating a lunch next to us or like, you know, shifting a coffee out of the way to explain something. And I was like, this, yeah, this lady is amazing. She's cool. So those teachers, I think the ones who saw us as people made the effort to connect to us and then went out of their way to help us learn. I think they're the ones who yeah, stood out the most. It's really interesting you say that, that you remember almost being an equal with her at lunchtime, you know, sitting and eating lunch together like it humanised her. Yes, very much That's so. really interesting. Because I, when I then went to yeah. teach in secondary, the message I was given was not that. It was not to humanise yourself yeah. too much because you didn't want to become too familiar because then you lose this teacher-student dynamic that you're supposed to have where you can control the room and have respect and authority and so I was very much about trying to distance myself from students. And yeah, that, that also, like it, it has also had an effect. Like you can have really good behavior management in the sense that it's very quiet, but that's not necessarily good learning, mm. which I didn't understand until I went to primary. Did you find that that messaging made sense to you or you just did it because you were told to do it? The messaging to... Keep the distance. To distance yourself. Yeah. Uh, I think it did make some sense because like I started teaching when I was 21 turning 22 and I and I like I'm 33 now and I still mm. get asked for ID yeah. <laughs> buying beers so I would have looked about 14 I think when I started teaching <laughs> yeah and I I think it was yeah this attempt to separate myself from the students and so yeah. that they would see me as a teacher but yeah, in retrospect, now I think back, yeah, it was the students that you really connected with and particularly when you get to year 11 and 12, you feel like you can because the students already have that respect and rapport, you know, maybe had you in previous years that already sort of know you a little bit. Yeah, and then those students you have a really good connection with and so the, the teaching gets so much better. Yeah. yeah. How do you think or what do you think about the way we're trained at university as teachers? I... Like I said before, I'm very academic, so I loved the theory and the you know all the study of psychology and educational psychology and how it all works and all that side of it, all that theory. But there just was not enough practical when it came to that. So I went to Monash Uni. I did the double degree. So I had an arts degree and an education degree. I was doing at the same time, and then whatever I did in arts degree, obviously, sort of directed what subjects I could then teach when I got to secondary school, but. Yeah, I just have very distinct memories of learning a lot of things that didn't help me. And I'll just give yeah. you an example. So like my first day of teaching, so I was teaching at this school in the southeast in Melbourne and the year before I'd started teaching there, all these boys were put into one grade in year eight because they were sort of all the mm -hmm. behavior problems and difficult boys. And they, so they put them all into one grade in year eight. And they were really, obviously, that was a very bad idea. And so they then spread them out across all the year nine classes the following year. Yep. But when they did that, I think I got about 10 of them or nine of them in my grade that I got for my first year of teaching. 
And so anyway, I get to my grade and we have a room change the first morning, like it's Monday, period one, and I've got a room change to the tech room. Yeah. So I'm in the woodwork room and I'm trying to get them to line up and they can smell fear and I'm looking yeah. 14 and I'm trying to tell them to do it. But, you know, anyway, then we go inside, I just let them in. I don't even wait for them to line up quietly. Yeah. So many mistakes. And then I walk in there and they're just running and they're pulling all the chisels off the wall and they're like sword oh. fighting and one pulled a saw off and I was like, not one moment at university has prepared me for this. No. Like nothing. Not one no. lecture. I have sat through I don't know how many thousands of hours of learning. Nothing. Nothing helps. So it was all about, yeah, going back to square one you know, using your voice that you have within you to control a room. Um, yes. Yeah, learning very quickly, lots of behaviour management techniques. Yeah. But even if I think about, I did the dip ed, so I only did one year, which I'm glad about because I don't know if I could have sustained the motivation for four years. I would have found that challenging because I just wanted to get out. Once I started education, I'm like, I just need to get a classroom now. But I remember even developing units and you know, as a teacher, especially at high school, you teach that unit once and you pretty much do a complete overhaul for the next year because things don't work. You had one idea of how that was going to play out. It didn't. Maybe there were things that you've missed out in the text that you were teaching. And I had all of these booklets because they, they were saying to us, take these units, you'll be able to implement them at school. I'd end up throwing them out. Yeah. You just don't use them. And even no. all these, these units, some of them, and obviously they because education is also politicized, there's so many other things that they want you to include or, you know, the curriculum's obviously changing every two minutes and so you have to learn something new or add something in or take it out. And there's always like a hot topic or something that really needs, you know, to be... And there's usually very good reason for that. But, yeah, then you get to a school, they've never even done that. Or, yeah. you know, you're teaching in a group or a, in a team with a you know cohort of kids and they've done that already or they don't actually really... It's not actually part of that particular year level that you get given that's not actually part of that year level's curriculum so yeah there's a lot of mismatch and you're not really taught how to plan collaboratively it's not it's very often inshallah you say you have to make this random unit of work and Mm. it's not the same no it's not very real there does say yeah that's what i was going to say it's that disconnect between the theoretical and the potential and the reality of the actual job i don't think we're kind of making that connection well no. at the moment. And the, yeah, it's it's very much like that. And I see that more and more. It's, you know, it's like thinking about teaching and those teachers that you remember, they're not necessarily the teachers. Now there's all this research and there's all this, you know, study on visible learning and what it needs to look like and best practice. And let's use a gradual release model and you need to use the writer's workshop or whatever. And I love a lot of that anyway. You know, so much of that is what I do every day. But I also don't do it to death yep. and I feel I don't feel like I'm trapped mm. in a writer's workshop model and I can't do anything outside of that because t- there's actually this huge element of teaching which is like alchemy. It's like magic and you don't actually, you can't plan for it all. Yes. I remember them telling us that and saying that teaching is magic or teaching is acting but nothing really does prepare yep. you for the fact that you walk into that room on the first day and those kids are yours to look after and here they are rocking up and you're just not prepared for the actual nothing on that lesson plan is going to go the way you think it's going to go and then and you know when you teach secondary school sometimes you have say three classes of the same subject you teach the same lesson three times in a row and three completely different outcomes happen 
from that one lesson plan because you just yep. you know students are not product it's not a it's not an assembly line where we just like yeah. clip on stuff every year and you just get this end product they're people with very complex yeah. lives and yeah. yeah i just i love a lot of the research and i love best practice and i really do believe in a lot of that really clear explicit teaching and modeling and sharing and all of those things but I just don't want it to suck the heart out of teaching. And the fact that I remember those particular teachers, they probably didn't yeah. even have learning intentions and success criteria. It didn't stop me from it didn't stop me I from learning didn't. and it didn't stop me from respecting mm. them or understanding what the lesson was. Yeah. And I think as you say about not removing the heart, being able to walk into a room and feel the dynamic, you can't teach that and you certainly can't learn about it in a classroom being told about it but you can you know what it's like you walk into room period six and the feeling is so different it feels low it feels the energy is just not there and you could get through 45 minutes of content period one you could maybe get through 15 minutes of that content in 45 minutes it'd take you so long or you have to sometimes go these kids are not up for this today and as much as I want to do this as much as I'd like to tick this off my list I probably need to do a meditation right now because yeah. that's all they can do. Yeah, and what you just said, teachers are the biggest like new age hippies going around because the way the way we talk about classrooms, they're 100%. like, and I could feel the energy <laughs> in the room just felt really low, and you know, or my energy, and I just you know, and the way we talk about the kids, it's true, but it's true. Like there is actually this thing, this yeah. it is like alchemy. You walk into this room and there's a dynamic within that classroom, and then like a particular yep. player within all of that dynamic is away. And then the dynamic has shifted because now oh, yeah. these certain characters are not in play. It's like the it's like a game of chess and one person's already out. So now like the most powerful person yeah. on the board is now different. So it's it's really yeah. tricky. It's very, very tricky. And there's a lot of thinking on your feet. You have to be very flexible, yeah, as you know, which is just why I love it because I wanted a job and I remember thinking that, you know, why, what, what, what do I want to do? I was really lucky and I worked really hard. I got a great, a great score. And so I had a lot of, a lot of opportunities, but I really wanted to be Mm -hmm. the teacher because I thought I want to be the teacher. Firstly, the good one, you know, the good ones that I've had, I want to be just like that person working in public schools as a really professional, Mm -hmm. empowering teacher that will make a difference. But more so I think I wanted to do it because I don't want to live the same day twice let alone the same year twice I hate that yeah some people it suits their personality to have a very similar year year after year that's definitely not me and so I thought yeah yeah I want something where every day is different and if you want every day that's different work with animals or kids and I have (laughs) I've just worked with kids every day and it's like you can't prepare for what they're about to say you just can't. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. If you had a pre-service teacher or someone considering teaching, what do you wish you knew that you can tell Ooh. them about teaching? I think this is a hard one because there's just so much you want to tell them um, because there's a lot of negativity yeah. even amongst teachers and I, I fall prey to it as well because we're tired sometimes, you know. Yeah. We get worked mm-hmm. hard and we and their job just builds and every year something else is added. So I get that we are tired, but, yeah, I really hate hate that because they sometimes sit in, their, in the staff room, these pre-service teachers, and they're hearing all this negative talk about this career 
that is actually the best career in the world and it's the most necessary career in the world. All other careers rely on it. And yet there's these people, you know, complaining or whatever. And what are you doing? You're making a mistake. And so I think I just tell them, no, it's, it's <laughs> don't believe the hype. It's actually really good. It's a great job. It's, it's very rewarding. You yeah. actually make a difference every day, whether you see it or not is another story Mm. every day, but you do genuinely make a difference. But I think I would tell them about behavior management and how important it is to have relationships with the students and that connect and making sure if they do have a a negative comment, if they are saying something negative, making sure they have however many positive comments with that student that day, making sure they take the time out to actually, you know, I had a student once who was quite a bit tricky and it was honestly me then finding out with some video game, like a computer game that I was really into. And I just had to learn how to play it on my own. I was like just playing this game so that when I spoke to him, I was like, hey, man, I just (laughs) tried that game that you are obsessed with. I just don't know how to play it. I was trying to build this thing and then I was like walking around and then it got nighttime and the zombies came out and whatever. And so then he's like thinks it's hilarious and I'm some sad old person who doesn't know how to play videos. But now I have this connection with this person. And so when they're stuck and they can't think of anything to write, now I've got something to say, hey, why don't you write about it? Pretend you're that person in that game or, you know, that. So yes. all of a sudden you can see their world. I think that's a really important yeah. thing for pre-service teachers. Don't think that you have to have the perfect Instagram diary and you have to like color code in highlighters and you don't have mm. to have it together. You don't have to have the classroom organization down pat to the point where it's, you know, someone could walk in and just run your class. That's all great in theory, but in actuality, you need to have a classroom that you said the dynamic is good. The, you know, students love being there. They're willing to take risks because they don't feel like someone's going to judge them. They feel like that's part of the process. So, yeah, I just tell them to do that and also to be obviously very organized but also know that that's not going to happen. So don't overplan. Like give yourself space. <laughs> it's such an oxymoron, isn't it? Be organized but be flexible. We all hear that all the time but it's literally yeah, how you, you have, have to be. For, yeah. Have things planned out but understand that if it doesn't go to yeah, plan, that's gonna, And it won't go to plan. So also give yourself like a free session that week yeah. because you're going to need it there'll be catch up, there'll be something didn't, you didn't finish or, you know, your students really love this particular topic and now you think, I'm going to change the cat, I'm going to change the, you know, the common assessment task, I'm going to make it about this because it's the same skill but they're actually yeah. really into this one. So now I have to change and rewrite the rubric. But that's, yeah. that's good teaching because you're responding to the needs and the learning of your students. Yeah. Absolutely. What do you see the role of a teacher to be? Teachers are like sort of all things to all people they Mm. obviously first and foremost it's about teaching and learning so it's about the growth and learning of the students in their in their classroom and in their care but teachers are also and i've learned so much more now obviously being in primary school how much the role of teaching really expands in primary school but they're very much the parent of these little kids when then their parents aren't around you're the adult in the room so you're the one they all look up to and and Mm. respect and love like I get little cards all the time Mr. V's the best I mean whatever love him and blah blah all the little little cards and in high school if I got that I would have panicked I would have thought oh my god I'm gonna get sued something this is a nightmare what what do I do I have to go to the principal and now it's like an expectation that Mm. the students just have this innate adoration for their teacher 
Yeah. So it's, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a totally different role because it's the closest thing to a parent without being the parent. Yeah. You're so, and you see them probably more hours of the day when they're awake and talking to you and they tell you so yeah. much about themselves. So it's a very trusting role. You're an, also an authoritarian at times. You have to set the boundaries and be a disciplinarian, but you also have to be the carer in the room too. You have to make sure everyone's okay, be quite empathetic. You have to also be a politician at times because you have to run the line. I work at a government school and governments have their own agenda and so the agenda changes and so does mine. You're an individual yeah. but you're also part of a collective and you have to do both of those things. You love every subject. That's really important. Like you love every single subject yeah. because kids pick up on your hatred of a particular area like yep. nothing else. Yeah, so you, you're an actor, yeah. you're everything. Yeah, it's very, very varied. Yeah, and is that what you like about it though, that you get to have Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's exhausting. Like don't get me wrong, I get tired and mm. no one understands teacher tired like teachers do. No one really gets mm. it. Like my wife's not a teacher and I'll be trying to describe why I'm tired and I'll be like, and I had yarn duty and then it was like raining. So then I had to go have a wet timetable and then just pulled out all the Lego and all the Meccano and then it was all over the floor and then the bell rang and I hadn't had a snack. And I'm trying to describe how straight, like my levels of stress was, well, yeah. you know, how it was going. But um, you just don't get it unless you're in that space and you've got 24 people wanting your attention. Yeah. 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 I remember actually a teacher who went out into industry. So he'd been working probably about six or seven years through year seven to 12, taught a fair few senior classes. And he said that when he went into industry, he thought, I'm really going to miss the holidays. He didn't really miss them because he didn't need them because he didn't feel that le level of emotional drain because his life was very organized. If he went into a day, he could have an agenda or he, he could have a timetable and he could execute anything that he wanted because he was working with other adults and he had real autonomy over the way his day went. You don't have that. And I think that it's that you get lethargic having to think on your feet all the yeah, time. Yeah, actually you get like, I think it was um, this article I was reading about decision fatigue and it's about how many decisions yeah. you make in a day. And they were running, you know, obviously humans make thousands of decisions per day, but teachers were one of, out of a few careers, one was like a pilot, a few others that had really high levels of decisions that you have to make. And then it comes yeah. down to like, Sometimes in the morning, I'm like looking in my wardrobe, staring at the clothes, and I'm like, what am I going to wear? Because it's like this, it's like the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's like, what? I say that to the kids. The kids talk about a uniform, and I'm like, I love a uniform. Me too. A nice one. Yeah. But I would not mind a uniform. Uh, for it every day. Be, be easy. Yeah. 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 I had Sarah on leap of faith and she was a teacher now she's a change manager and she talks about change fatigue is a real thing too people having to deal with a lot of change and I think we as teachers have to deal with a lot of change as you say like the government comes in there's a whole new agenda a new curriculum we've got a new leadership program you need to be a part of we now need to the showcase new year level. yeah you've got a new le yep. year level learn these new kids so I think that idea of decision making and change together maybe as part yeah. of it too and the and the care. But it's also what we love it's also what we love about yeah. it yeah like yeah it's like exhausting because it's so intense and it's so varied and so complex and yet it's also the thing that i wanted in my life i wanted a job that wasn't the same every day i wanted a job or a life 
where I could look back and I never lived the same year twice. And so I guess the cost of that or the price of having an, you know, an exciting, ever-changing life is the fact that it is exhausting when you're in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hence the holidays and you get them and you're like, get sick for the first week or two. 100%. And then you just, yeah. And then you're just like dragging yourself around to coffee shops and trying to like buy new clothes because you have holes or clag or glue or blue tack stuck to everything you own or whiteboard marker. So you have to like replace things and yeah, you finally get, and then you're trying to like madly plan for whatever year level or class you've got next. And yeah, and then you're back in the classroom. Yeah. But I'm with you. I think know it, know that that is a part of it, that you will be very tired. You'll get to Friday and you'll just want to lie on the couch under a blanket. But the exhilaration that comes from being in a classroom is like no other. Exactly. Yeah. It is so different. So can you describe yourself as a teacher or how you'd like to be seen as a teacher? Ah, this is tricky. So I guess if I can sort of have an out-of-body experience and just watch myself teaching, I think I would be described <laughs> as enthusiastic about everything. So I'm enthusiastic about all parts of learning. I think I would be described as somebody who gets it, like somebody who mm-hmm. people go to or, you know, they – telling you something and I understand exactly what they mean like I really listen and I do understand I understand them or their problem and I think Mm -hmm. I'd be described as creative but also probably professional and I think probably trustworthy because you know they they do feel like they can tell me things and that I've got their back so I hope that's what people think anyway my colleagues might listen to this and be like what is he talking about that is rubbish. <laughs> She's just telling Laura all these lovely qualities about himself. He's disorganized. <laughs> well, you didn't say you were organized, to be fair. You didn't say that's that you were. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, too, you made the comment about people feeling as though you get it. How much of teaching has to be intuitive, do you think? Oh, yeah. Well, I remember reading these statistics, and it was sort of about how People who start teaching from uni, a certain percentage of people after, you know, after a year or two or three or I think it was by five years, this enormous percentage had left. Yeah. These new teachers that, you know, start teaching is not what they think it is. Have you heard this? You've heard this like percentage? Yeah. Fifth year. Fifth year seems between year five and seven or something is like make or break. Yeah. Yeah. Just huge percentage, like more than 50%. And so Mm. if, if that is happening... There must be something about it that is, it's not everyone has it. Not everybody yeah. has this ability or skill or whatever it is in order to make it. And maybe it is that. Maybe it's the intuition. Maybe it's the the thing that's not on paper, that yeah. quality about the person where maybe it is the care or maybe it is just the fact that they listen enough to see what's really happening or they are flexible enough to change. And you have to be very humble too. So you know, getting feedback from students when they say that was really boring or I didn't oh, learn anything yeah. from you that when you did that. How many careers does someone turn around and just give you that direct feedback? But when you're teaching high school, there's no filter on those kids and None. they're telling you how it is. And so if you're humble and you can take it and you can also use it to then change your practice enough so that you're meeting their needs, mm. it's like, yeah, I think maybe not everyone has that. Yeah, I think you're right. The whole idea is of if you can't do teach needs to be dismantled. Oh, for sure. I, I love it. People and so many of my mates, like I don't really have a lot of 
my in my friendship circle, not a lot of teachers outside of like the teachers I know from work. And so it's not like I can okay. get in contact with heaps of uni friends from, you know, uh, learning about teaching or whatever. So I don't have have that. A lot of my friends do other other careers and other jobs, a lot of tradies and, and different things. And so they really have a very particular understanding of what it's like to be a teacher or what teachers do and don't do. And they love mm. to hang it on me when it gets to holidays, like every yeah. person who's not a teacher, but they just don't get it. But, yeah, they don't understand Particularly, like you said, that whole those who don't or can't do teach. It's like yeah. because somehow we're scared of doing and so we just tell others to do it because that's such a lie. And how many yeah. teachers do you know? Teaching is not all they do. Like here's, here is Laura running a podcast. Like you tell yeah. your students all the time to have a voice and to speak up or write about important issues or you know all these things that you tell them. And here you are doing it. So you just because mm. you're a teacher doesn't mean you don't do it. So much teachers do outside of their teaching. Mm. Well, hopefully, hopefully lots of them, you know, lots that I know do anyway. Yeah. So you originally started at high school as a yes. teacher. What yep. were your methods? So mainly English and a lot of humanities and a little bit of photography. What was the draw to high school to begin with? So I'd been teaching for six years at the secondary school and I'd taken on like a leadership role as like a year seven, eight student coordinator. It was a big school, so had, you know, about 1,300, 1,400 kids. The year sevens and eights, I think there was about 500 of them combined and so I was working with another person looking after just the year sevens. But it was very repetitive teaching secondary school and particularly because I started teaching in year 11 and 12 and mainly year 12 and then I started the kids I was teaching were getting pretty good results so I'd ask my principal if I could teach something else or change and it was like no because because you're getting getting good results now why would we move you that makes no sense Mm. so it wasn't really about me as a learner it was about me as this producer of ATAR scores and so I just thought I need to change I want to learn something new and so uh, I have this one mentor at the school I taught at and she was just amazing as a teacher. She could command and own any room she was in. She was just really a really amazing educator, very good leader, very good coordinator as well. And she had gone on maternity leave and left for a period of time and I'd stayed in contact and she was telling me that she started working in a few primary schools doing CRT work and she said, Nath, you would you'd love it and I'm like I have zero interest absolutely zero Mm. interest going to a primary school like firstly what do they do all day like make pasta necklaces and stick it onto frames and (laughs) like color in I have I don't want to do that and they're like gross and they vomit and they've snot and they like they touch your shoes I don't want anything to do with that it's disgusting yeah I I always think about the touching of the shoes too I don't know why that's my image no they do they actually pat my feet and I say please stop please stop touching my shoes (laughs) they do so she was telling me that it's really good. So I thought, you know what, I'm all about living my life where no two years are the same or, you know, I try and do different things all the time. And I was getting into a bit of a rut. I was teaching the same content. And in English, it's the same books year in, year out until they change them, you know, and it's the same, unfortunately, you know, because of NAPLAN, the way that the VC is run, they're really looking for particular writers and particular formats mm. and yeah, everything's it's true. very structured and it's very repetitive and so 
uh, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to ask my boss if I can take one year off, try primary school for a year, learn what I can from them. And I was sort of talking about grade six and year seven. So maybe I would teach in a grade yeah. six class. I'd learn more about the transition between grade six and seven, yeah. maybe build a relationship with the local primary school. And so anyway, I sold it to my boss and my boss was like, fine, but you get one year and you, you come back. So we'll hold your position yeah. for the year. We'll fill it with a grad or whatever. And then we'll, you can come back. I'm like, yeah, 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 no, definitely. I'm definitely not going to stay. Like, it's not what I want to do. Yeah. So I started teaching at a school. And the cool thing was my mentor had actually started teaching full-time at, at a school. And I applied at a few different primary schools, about three, I think. And I got a job at this particular school and she was teaching there. And so I actually taught the same cool. year level with my ultimate mentor from the school I was teaching at beforehand. And we taught opposite yeah. each other. Classrooms were opposite. It was like, Everything, the universe was just looking after us. And so that was the best thing ever because I got to teach with this person I really, really respected and also learn a whole new way of seeing teaching and seeing students and connecting with parents and the whole community of education. And I thought, I don't want to go back. Absolutely mm. not. Like there's no nothing that brought me back. What year level did you have first up? So I ended up having grade five first year mm-hmm. uh, and then I followed the same cohort up to grade six and then I taught grade six for three years before moving into grade one and two, which is what I'm doing now. Was there any training or PD that you did to feel confident or to oh, sort of so bridge the gap? so much, so much okay. PL. Like I can't even describe to you how much professional learning I was doing and I always went to so many, so many communities of practice and so many professional learning sessions run by you know experts or I did a lot with the staff at the school too so I had to learn things like I've never done a Fontas and Pinnell reading like a running record I don't know what that is what is it yeah so this is what I mean (laughs) educate me now like what do you mean you don't know what that is but we secondary school kids just don't know because like how do you teach like for instance when I think back at my in my teaching practice in secondary school when I was teaching reading I would tell them what to look for and there was a lot of like a NAPLAN examples and I'd show them the skill that they was trying to learn and maybe would do you know a class novel and we'd talk about it and then do some activities on it but I wasn't actually teaching them how to read Mm. I just assumed they'd learned that in primary school and now we're moving forward and now it's like the skills of reading but actually adults and children use the same skills for reading mm. so a running record is where you sit next you would have you'll remember doing this when you were in primary school you sit next okay. to the teacher and you read a book to them some like tiny little thin boring book yeah. about some random topic and yeah. you just read it out loud for a period of time while the teacher is ticking something on a piece of paper and what they're doing okay. is ticking every single word you say correctly if you have to self-correct they put a little sc if you need help from the teacher, mm. they'll put a T and mark it as an error. If you make the error, it counts towards a, like an error count. And then at the end, yeah. you ask them some questions, but they're very, very specific. So they're asking you literal, inferential, can they reorder information in the text? Can they you know, infer something outside of it? So yeah, Fontes and Pinnell is a company that make that kit. And it's one of the main okay. kits that they use. Uh, what teachers use in education to assess exactly where a student is at on a continuum in their reading, but also what skills they need to work on. The only PD I've ever done about reading and spelling, I don't want to name what it is because I'm not going to be particularly 
positive about it. Right, right. But it was all about like phonemes and phonics and like this way things sound. Does that yes. make sense? Yeah. So they would have this big grid and you'd read a word or you'd say a word and then you would identify the sound to say it's A and you then look at the part on the grid that has A and it could be spelt AI, it could be spelt A, it could be spelt AY, but these are the letters or letter that make that sound and then do that for every single sound that you're making and then you'd work out where on the board that sound or the letters could create that sound. And I'd always have kids at the end of the day say, okay, I understand that the sound I'm hearing is A. There's five different ways the language could create that sound. So it could be A, A, I, A, Y, whatever. How do I make the choice? I can hear it. You've got me to that part on the graph. I know that's where I should be. How do I choose? And I could never Mm. get to the next point. Yeah. Because the way for me that I would, I'd know because I read. So I know that a T at the start of a word is always a T sound, mm. but a T in the middle of a word could actually be, especially with if it's a TI, could make a sh sound. But I yep. know that because I know the way a word looks and I know where certain sounds tend to appear pattern wise in words. Yeah. But that's something that takes time. Yeah. So I know that. But how do I get – so that's that's the only time I've ever learned really anything at high school about how to teach kids how to spell using sounding. Phonetics, yeah. Yeah, phonetic. Thank you. That's the word I meant to say before. But I still – there was still a gap for me that I couldn't close in year yeah. seven and eight. Well, and the thing is there's some amazing people who've done heaps of research into this. Like Misty Adonio is one who – she's Australian as well. There's not a lot of – often when you find experts in education they're not australian which yeah. frustrates me because there actually are so many experts in australia but we don't know who they are because they don't get the airtime they don't get the books you know the book um contracts they don't get to be the people that we hear from but one of them is misty i was lucky enough to do some pr with her and she's all about exactly what you just spoke about she doesn't actually mm. really understand why we're turning english into phonetic language when it's not phonetic well, it's, not. it's actually not it's a phonetic, not phonetic language and so although it has phonetics in it and there are phonetics like english makes a certain amount of letters you can arrange them to make a certain amount of sounds that is true there is a limited amount of sounds that english can make when you yep. then look at words you can teach it phonetically so i can teach you how to spell words phonetically and and to identify like you just said like the graphemes that they're using or like if it's a digraph yeah. with two letters or a trigraph with three and you can't separate yep. the sounds, therefore there's a sound in there. So you can, and you do need to teach kids that because then it's mm-hmm. part of learning how language works. So you do, yep. I think particularly prep one, two, there should be lots of teaching on how words are built and the whole yes. idea of, of language. But the key is, and this is what she does, and it's exactly what you said, English is about knowing the word. Like It's all about sight. Yeah. So you need to know what the word looks like because you've seen it before and mm. then you teach them in context. So she's all about using yeah, okay. like a, say, a picture book and then teaching them, you know, you read a particular word and you look at this word here. And so then you mm. talk about maybe the etymology also of the word. So it's not just this random French word that we now use in English. You teach them that yes. all the words that came from France that we use from this particular area, they all have this particular ending. 
And let's think of other words that we know that might have the same ending. And then you realize that all of the words that have that ending, that make that sound, all come from France or Germany or wherever that part of the, our language came from, unless there's some that don't match because the English is like that. We have so many different cultures and rules yeah. and things change. You say, but this one, even though it's got the ending, this one doesn't actually match because it's from here. And so you t attach all these stories to all the words yeah. and the students yep. are like, oh, I know that the digraph is that, but it doesn't make that sound because in France they don't, they don't have that letter or whatever. And so they start to build a very rich understanding yeah. of language. Yeah. That's awesome. You just yeah, educated so Miss, me. Miss Diodonio, oh, I think it's called Spelled Out, the book maybe. I could be making. I that. will find it, or you will find it and send it to me, I'll and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. But I think that that's the whole point. We don't get trained very well, and so also, do I have the time for one student in a year seven English class when I have forty five minutes to that? That's the problem. That's the problem, really, isn't it? That I oh, don't. I mean, time is a huge factor. And when you get to secondary school, I felt like the push, the emphasis was all on curriculum. Like I had to espouse the curriculum. And so it was all about mm -hmm. like, we have this four-week unit. The topic is poetry. We're doing this. The cat is this. We're working up to the cat. They need to cover all these different types of poetry. They need to tr trial all these different types of poetry, whether they want to or not, and whether they get it or not, or however much you love it or not. And then at the end of it, we're going to test them on it. And then that becomes their score because that's what the curriculum says we need to teach them. And then we move on and then we do the next one and the next one and the next one. And so it's like cat, 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 and the cat drives the content. And then the content yes. is dry because you're trying to, all you're doing is covering content. It's not like making the students excited about these different topics because there's not enough time to get through mm. everything and stop yep. to do these other things. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Which in primary school is very much the opposite. Like you just said before, I don't have the time. But in primary school, it's all about I'm going to keep teaching this student until they get it. Mm. I'm going to keep teaching them that particular content or lesson or whatever they need to know until they get it rather than it's not about moving them on and moving them on and moving them on. Even though they might go up a year level, it's like you talk to that teacher who's coming up next and say, hey, this person's coming to you. This is how far they've come, but this is what they still need to know. It's really important when they're doing their writing, can you give them an opener? Can you give them something to start with? Or can you really focus on their connectives because they, they just use too many simple sentences? And so you're building the craft of writing or you're building like on their mathematical understanding because you know exactly where they're at and what they need to know next. Mm. But in secondary school, when you've got 125 kids, you don't know them well enough. No, especially you when don't. you're only sitting for 25 minutes at a time. Yeah, and it could be days apart. Yeah. And so even if you do get a moment where you're like, that was a really good lesson, they were amazing, they were so tuned in and connected, and then you don't see them for three days. Yeah. It's so like you have to start from scratch again. Mm. Yeah, you lose the magic. And I think too, I'm working in quite a big school as well, there's so much disconnect, you know, like who's who knows what about that student? Is it the English teacher? Is it the coordinator? Is it the principal? Do we all know? Are we all allowed to know? So there's a lot of disconnect in terms of who has what information, whereas I suppose at primary school, a parent comes to you, you know, you're seeing them all day, every day. You've got that dialogue, you know. it's Yeah, you see them after recess, then before lunch, after lunch, yeah. Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, 
if high school is preparing, you know, primary school is preparing for high school, so you're trying to give them all the foundational skills, then high school is ultimately preparing them for university or the greater world or the bigger world that they're going to step into. And so there has to be that level of independence. Of course there does. There has to be the ability to work with a variety of people because that's life. But I do think that we lose that real community at high school and you you would be way more adept to speak to that than I would having worked in both. Oh yeah, for sure. Lucky for that. And I was not, I didn't see parents as anything really to include at high in my school? teaching. It was, yeah. yeah, no, I was not something, unless the parent wanted some, you know, they contacted me and wanted an update or yeah. happy to give them one. Or if they were particularly concerned and had contacted me about a particular, you know, really worried about this skill or something that's not progressing, how can we help them? But that was very rare, the school mm. I was at. And then there were parent-teacher interviews. And the parent is literally like sitting down five or ten minutes and off they go to the next one. It's like English, maths, blah, 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 different person every two minutes. Yep. And that was all I ever saw of, of the parents. And so really I didn't have any connection to the parent community at all. Whereas in primary school, it's the complete opposite. It's yeah. sort of like now the parents come into my classroom often, they all know me well. And I, at the, right at the beginning, I hadn't had kids yet. And so... I used to think, man, this parent, like, you know, they're dropping off the kid and they're getting teary on the first day. I'm like, what is your problem? I don't understand. <laughs> like, you know, get a real problem. And, and now, now I have a kid. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Now I'm like, that's that person's baby. Right. I'm like, they had them as this little baby and now you're trusting this person to look after them for a year. You, you're handing them over to be looked after. I'm like, man, I do get it now. I really get it. And so I think that's also impacted my teaching too, where now I see these these students, they're like, these these are the, you know, the precious little babies of all these parents that I now know because they connect with me and I speak to them. And, you know, we've got different digital platforms or different ways that we can connect with them. And well, just totally different dynamic between the parent community and me as a teacher, for sure. How has becoming a parent shifted education, teaching, your values? Mm, definitely. It's like it broke something inside me. <laughs> I used to go to funerals and not even cry. I used to go to funerals oh, and not cry. Like something it, I happens really, when you I, have children, I, I know. Yeah, I didn't cry. I just wasn't really connected to, like I was a, a thinker. Like I really thought deeply about things and like to learn and know things and study love philosophy and existentialism and always yeah. like I love it but I these things would happen to me I'm like well that's sad but you know it's part of life I sort of just logically reason my way out of things yeah, yeah. and then and I'd watch other people tear up over things and think oh well, then it must be touching for them well, I don't really I don't get it or never understood why you would ever cry in a movie that just it had never happened to me so I was like I don't understand it's a movie yeah it's a movie and now I'm like watching a Kleenex ad and I'm like, hold it together. Don't cry. This is very moving. My baby's going to grow up and leave me. Yeah. Yeah. Or you watch an ad and it's about a father and a daughter and it's, you know, like her growing up and then getting married. I'm like, oh, I can't watch this. No. And my wife bought me a book for our anniversary, uh, I think it was last year, and it was like a picture book, but I'm in it and so is my daughter. Yeah. And so like cartoon versions of us. She yep. must have, I don't know how, what company made them. Yeah, um, I we're like, my husband you know, too. It's about, <laughs> did you? Is it like the same one? It's like, I, like not growing up or something. Oh yeah, and it's something. Like, yeah, so you've um, got cartoon. Yeah, 
just mothers, Mother's and Father's Day. We get we we're all over it. Oh my god, I can't read it. I actually started. I was like, I can't. And then I was trying to tell my wife why I couldn't read it, and then I can't even speak. So now I'm crying too much <laughs> about this book, and she's like, she's not even this emotional about it. And she's like, now you're just embarrassing yourself. But I'm like, something happened to me when I had this child. Yeah, and it's just made me like open to the world now. It's like everything really reaches in when before it didn't. It's so funny. I remember, and I was the same as you, I didn't understand. I used to have a friend of mine at school. She's quite like at the drop of a hat. We go to movies and she'd be this sobbing mess. I'm like, oh, get it together for goodness sake. And I remember being heavily pregnant with my first child, watching Marley and Me, which was the stupidest thing I've ever done. Had my dog on my lap and I was howling like a, and I, it was like visceral. I couldn't even stop it. And pretty much that's me now forever. I've just, yeah, you're right. Something, <laughs> yeah, yeah, something shatters that could never, like a yeah, wall comes break. down. It's like a good break. It's oh, like yeah. it broke, it broke, but it made you alive. Yeah. And so yeah. I remember, yeah, I remember holding my daughter up. We came, I was like maybe the second day or something of being at home with this mm. tiny baby and, you know, wife's dead asleep. Yeah. And I'm just staring at the wall. It's like probably like three o'clock in the morning. I don't even yeah. know what time it is. Yeah. And I'm just looking at this baby. And I'm like, it actually hurts. Yeah. Like it actually hurts how much you love the baby. And I'm like, and I didn't even know I needed it. Yeah. I didn't even know I needed anything else in my life. And now I have this baby. It's actually hurting how much I love this baby. And so, yeah, I think that's what's changed my teaching practice. Cause yeah. now it's like, these are people. Yep. And these are the children of people, and these are loved. These children, hope like in most cases, they're yeah. very loved by their family and by the people around them. And so, I need to do the best by them, the absolute best I can do for them because they deserve it. They deserve it. And these families trusting me to do it, and it's it's a big, it's an honor, but it's mm. a huge responsibility. And yeah. so, I just didn't see that part. And I think to the way I used to speak to Year Sevens was awful really in retrospect when I think about that authoritarian kind of the thing I was trained to sort of be very not dictatorial but I was very much about having authority yeah lots of boundaries lots of following through with consequences for the first two weeks until they knew I was so I'd go to my class and they'd be in two straight lines Mm. like all the way up to year 12 my class would already line up when I get there yeah and other you know the teacher across the way would have this crowd this like mess of students coming in, throwing stuff and like banging on the door as they walked in. And I'd have this quiet room of people filtering in and sitting yeah. down. But then I never, I didn't see them for all of the learning they'd done to that point. I was like, why can't they write this thing? Or why is the handwriting so bad? Yeah. And whatever it was that was stopping their learning or I thought was not meeting the standard, not this person, like six or you know, maybe 10 years ago, they couldn't read at all. Yes. Like, and now and now they're sitting here having a conversation about, about a book that they just read. And even though maybe it's not particularly, maybe it's not at standard yet, whatever mm. they're writing, mm. it's close to it. And look at how far they've come. Look at all the things they've learned to get to this point. And so I just think, yeah, that's what parenting, I think, teaches you too. Like there's just so much learning. That person couldn't walk well, yeah that person couldn't and hold their head up once yeah yeah now look at them they're sitting here and they're having this conversation yeah their behavior might be not great in this moment 
but that does not mean all the things you think it means. Mm. Yeah. And it may have nothing to do with you as the teacher or nothing to do with what you're teaching them or their opinion of you or anything. It's actually, it's not even about you. Yeah. Yeah. You've had a fair few other educational roles outside of the classroom as well, haven't you? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I've taught some, like, I've had some leadership roles in the school. So, yep. I've, uh, you know, that's year seven coordinator kind of role. And then in the primary school that I'm at, I've been a leading teacher, now learning specialist. And, you know, at times I'll fill in, do like acting AP type roles. Yep. But so last year I had an opportunity to, like a job came up at the Department of Education, what they call it, an education improvement leader or an EEL, which is the nice way of calling them, E-I-L. <laughs> Is it not? Uh, it sounds so, like an awful sound. Yeah. It's awful. It's like oh, we're sending an eel to your school. It's like, Ugh. I just um, think of the little mermaid straight away. That's a vision I have in my head. The evil, evil eels, yeah. <laughs> and so that was – and I didn't know that much about it, but I'd had a little bit of exposure to the department through a program that was running for, uh, and then we had some people come to our school and they were sort of building the leadership capacity of the school or working with teachers on their practice a little bit. And so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go for this role because it came up as a secondment. It was sort of like a temporary okay. position for a certain amount of time. And I thought, if nothing else, I won't, I might not get it. But if mm. I do get it, it's only temporary. If I hate it, I don't have to keep doing it. Mm. And, yeah, so I got this job working in the Department of Education. I, I got given about 13 different schools to go to. So it's a lot of traveling. So you go between schools everywhere. And every school, there would be a different need. So sometimes it would be working with a principal because they don't have an AP because the school's too small. They don't have mm. a, an additional person to support them. So you go in, they'd bounce ideas off you. You would help them write their annual implementation plans and their strategic plans or you know, plan the professional learning. Or you would go and do professional learning and PL for their staff because they're too small to afford having PL externally. So you just run, you would do the PL for them on whatever topic they needed it on. So I was doing that. So it's kind of like I was doing everything. Some schools it was like data analysis and finding out, yeah, okay. you know, extracting data. So who's in your top group? Who's in your Who was in your top group in year seven and is no longer in your top group in year nine? Yeah. Let's get these kids before they get to year 12. Sometimes it was about teaching practice. So I would actually go in and teach lessons and teachers would observe me teaching. And so these are like, you don't know the kids at all. You're yeah. just going in fresh and teaching. Yeah, it was very, like, if I thought my job was buried in the classroom, this yeah. was like nothing else I'd ever experienced. So, and I loved it. How much training do you get to do that? Uh, there was not a lot. <laughs> I, like, obviously the interview is quite rigorous. Yeah. So they really are sure you're the right person for the role. So they really look for people who have that personality or have had that training or are interested in that particular thing. Yeah. But yeah, once I got in, there was a person who, so, so the structure is at a school, at a government school, your principal has a boss who is a SEAL, <laughs> who's a senior education improvement leader, okay. <laughs> even more ridiculous. And so the SEAL is that leader or that boss yeah. for a group of principals in a particular area. Okay. So it's like a particular area of the network. And so in the Outer East network, so the, in the Outer East part of Melbourne, it's a huge area, goes from sort of like Ringwood mm-hmm. all the way out to way past Werribee, uh, oh. um, Warburton, Warburton, oh, Hillsville, huge. out there, right out, Dixon's Creek, huge. And so 
out of that all that area, they break that up into areas mm-hmm. for little clusters, and then from that, then the seal gets one of those areas each. Mm-hmm. But an eel can go anywhere within the area. Oh, so the, wow. the eel gets assigned to. So you might be working in, say, a school in Hillsville, and you're working in Ringwood, and you're working in you know, up in the Dandenong Ranges somewhere, but you're also, you've got another couple of schools grouped together near Coldstream. So you travel a lot and you get to see really different educational environments. You wouldn't have had your own classroom at that time, did you? No, 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 I wasn't teaching. It's a full-time, full-time position. Yeah. So what were the biggest takeaways for you from that? Oh, the PL, the PL was insane. So like I was talking to you before, Misty Adonio, she runs these PL sessions and they're very hard to get into, often quite expensive, but she did one privately just for the eels and the seals. So it was like this really one-on-one. It was a really amazing experience. People who write, like, have you seen, you know, the voices program for English? Have you seen where they do voices? was like vocabulary and... No. No, I haven't seen that. Okay. It's like one of the teachings, like structures that they can kind of teach you to improve teaching of writing okay and the author of that came out and I was invited to go to that and so yeah you get to have these amazing learning experiences as a teacher plus then you're also going into all these schools and you're working with principals in one and writing AIP goals for several schools so you're getting to see the whole gamut of how schools work how whole school improvement happens Mm. right down to being in someone's classroom and showing them how to use the writer's workshop model or anchor charts or whatever it is that they would like to learn more about. So, yeah, it was it was very, very formative, definitely. It seems like the perfect connection between classroom and government practice or government understanding how much yeah. authority. I, I had no idea that they even existed. No, you, you literally, you were telling me. I had me. no idea. And the thing was, every Friday we would meet. So it'd be like, obviously the seals themselves. So there were five seals in my area and there were two eels that worked with those five seals. Then there's like an area manager. So it's like this particular area isn't broken up into all these different networks or areas mm. or, you know, smaller bits, but then it gets back to this area manager. And then there's obviously four main huge areas in Melbourne. There's an inner east, outer east, Murray, Darwin, Murray something, Goulburn. Yeah. And so there's these huge, these four massive areas and we'd have meetings where we'd all meet together and send in all the seals and eels and other people who work at the department all meet together to discuss what's happening in all of those areas. So I'm going to say it from my perspective, but I'm sure I'm not alone. Why do we often find that there is such a disconnect between the department and what's happening in schools when there literally is this conduit that could be running between. So once, so that all of those, so that whole area, say would be northeast Victorian region, it would be called region. They all feed back to what they call central. So central is like the Department of Education for Victoria that's in Melbourne. And that is very corporate. Like I met a lot of people who work there and they have never been teachers. They have like business degrees, economic degrees, they're not actually edu- educators. And so they really see, and they're all that data. It's really, really the huge push is data. And they're not wrong because, you know, if you can see if the data of a particular school is terrible, mm. the teaching learning is probably terrible. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of that, it, it may not be, 
but the, there's something that's not working. If the students yeah. are not learning the content and they cannot perform at all, there's a yes. problem. But the flip side that, to that is then a school who has great data may or may not be just teaching to the test. Correct. And that is awful, awful teaching. It's boring. The students hate it. They might get a good score in that plan, but their VCE results will be good, but never the best because it's yeah. we're teaching them to not be strong in their particular areas. We're teaching them to be weak because they're, they're not really learning why they do what they do. They're just learning enough to get through the test or to get a good score. Yeah, and to so, regurgitate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is not education. That should no. never have been the point of it. And so that's why we're seeing, you know, obviously the NAPLAN, for the, however many years NAPLAN's been out. I'm not saying there shouldn't be something that is, you know, that national testing. I, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's really helpful as a really big lens to look at the whole nation or state by state or a particular area. But when you're really narrowing it down to a student and then judging the student on that test, it just is not a good in indicator when it gets that small. And they, they do use it that small. So I'd be sent to a school sometimes and it would be, say, for instance, it was like some data issue. So it would be something to do with NAPLAN results have been declining or students who are really high performing in your uh, grade five slip yeah. in your seven and really slip in your nine. And so it was about like, all right, who are these students? Let's identify them. Let's put faces to the data. This is what they're all really big on. So you okay. put the faces on the data. You name the kids. You talk to the teachers, say, do you know these students? Do you know that that student was in the top 2% of their school in grade five? And often these teachers are like, what? That kid? And so they've got this huge capacity and it's not being reached. But there's, there's a billion reasons for that. And this is where they yeah. go wrong because they think yeah. that somehow we can get this kid back to where they should be just by improving the teaching and learning. But it's like yeah. you didn't ask if that child's parents split up or yep. if they're having an identity crisis or they had just lost someone in death or, mm -hmm. you know, there's, a, there's just a thousand million reasons yep. why this person is no longer performing the way. And maybe they, maybe they were when they were younger, but maybe they're, you know, maybe it was a fluke or like, Anything could happen then. Yes. And so you're trying to make a, like an industrial economic model fit teaching and education. And people are not products. You can't, you just can't put them all on the assembly line and assume at the end you will get the same result because you won't ever get the same result. The same kid, that one kid who's really good every day can flip out one day. Yeah. And so it should never, it should never be analyzed the way it's being analyzed. I think yeah. is the biggest problem. So that's where central are like, we've made these promises about education. Victoria is going to be the education state. We have particular percentages we need to reach. We need to get them. And I'm not saying you can't make a difference. So you go into these schools, you do identify the kids, you talk to the kids, you run lessons. I ran, you know, small groups with children who were, or students who were just below where they used to be at. So like bringing mm. them back up to, to reach these percentages but then you've got to ask yourself, is this where we want to put all of our resources? Like, is this, as yeah. a society, is this really where we yeah. want to, is this, is this the most important thing? Is it? Because if it is, fine. Maybe that's the most important thing is data. But to me, the most important thing is humanity and people. Mm. <laughs> and so I think we're, we've just lost our way a little bit because we're, we're getting really good at what we do and we're getting, and then we're using technology really well. 
we're identifying, we're using data in our teaching and teachers know how to use data, yep. some, and they will use data to, you know, pre and post test, but not overdo it. And they won't do it for everything. They'll do it for like the important things. And they know how to use the workshop model and they know how to use learning intentions and success criteria and teach explicitly and do shared learning or gradual release model, whatever. They know all of that and they can do it all, but they just don't do it to death because they know repeating, repeating, repeating might get you some improved results, but it makes the kids bored and you treat the kids like they're stupid. Yes. That's what you're doing. Yes. And they're not stupid. Preps are not stupid. Yeah. And if you tell them, this is what we're learning today and this is what success looks like. And if you do that, fine. And there's definitely moments where that is very helpful. But if that's all you do from prep to year 12, I would not have made it to year 12 and still loved education. I probably wouldn't have been a teacher. It's interesting the way you talk about the standardized tests. And I'm with you in that I don't think it's a bad thing to create a level of understanding. What I don't love is that teachers don't get the access to it as quickly as they need to, to inform their own practice. And this was, you know, the episode I talk about with my mentor is that you often don't get it the year that you have the kid. Well, what's the data then for? And if the data is then for marketing, is that really marketing the school accurately? You know, to me, to to have a big lens to look at education and to get some informed understanding of a school in the state, then it needs to inform practice. That's what it should be used for. Yeah. Yeah. I don't don't think it's used well for that. No, it doesn't. And so Nathan could, like if we used it differently and people had more access to it and it wasn't like this huge, yeah, the test, the like the import that's put on it yeah. uh, is, should just never have been there. And it should be, yeah, it's one indication of how the students are going and how the state is going, but there should no be, so there should not be attached to that yeah. funding for schools or should never have been attached to yes. that, how we're going to rank you. And it's somehow going to have this positive or negative impact on you, the way you people view your teachers, your school. Parents can look up that school and go, why are they doing this or why are they mm-hmm. not performing like this other school is on this particular test? And it might, maybe because they're actually yeah. teaching students to love reading and writing and they're not teaching them to write according to this pro forma or this template that's not going to yeah. really get them the top marks in year 12 anyway. The kids who the kids who get the top top marks for writing are never the kid no. who just uses teal paragraphs and yeah. that basic introduction. They just aren't because that that assessor reads a thousand essays and nine hundred ninety nine of them follow the teal paragraphing and the exact way we teach kids because that's what gets them through. That's what gets them the mark over forty. It's never going to get them the fifty. The kid who breaks the mold. It's like in everything. You know, the most successful yeah. people. Other people who break the mold, but they know the rules, but then they break yes. them to do something different and then they end up the most successful. So, yeah. Nathan, if you had an opportunity to create your own school, how would you like your school to function and to be? So, now that I've thought primary school, I would definitely put that structure. So, where you have one class with one teacher, at least for the four main subjects. So, I'd have my English humanities, maths, and science, I would teach those four. Whatever teachers I would hire would have to be trained in those things. And if they aren't, teachers can learn very quickly. We are mm-hmm. learners. So they would teach all four, and that would go from grade prep to 
year twelve, uh, year mm. ten, and then year eleven and twelve would obviously be more the specialised teachers, and you'd have to follow the VCE curriculum because that's how the system works. But that teacher, say for instance, you had a year ten teacher, they would teach you year ten English, year ten maths, year ten science, and year ten humanities. They would teach all all four things, and that's not impossible because I now teach maths, science, humanities, and English. I teach all of it. Um, and I know it's only up to grade six, but I have kids in my grade when I was teaching grade six working at a year nine level and I had to know it and I did it at school. Like I did maths all the way to year 12. Why can't I teach that? It's, it's just about refreshing your your knowledge base. So yeah, that's what I would do. And I would definitely break it into primary up to grade four. Okay. Then use that middle school kind of structure that America uses, whether it's that five to, and a lot of private schools in, Australia, in Victoria use it up to year eight and then have year nine to 12. And that's the big thing you that think? That would be my thing, yeah. So you, and teachers would have teachers would have a classroom of their own. Mm. So they would, ha- they would feel that they had this sense of belonging connection. They would know the students better than ever because they mm. actually know that this one kid, because when I taught English only for you know, a couple of years, if I had this student, I didn't know that they were a genius at maths. Yeah. I only knew that they couldn't write an essay to save their life. Mm you see that student differently yeah so that that teacher would just know the kids really well they know all the things they need to do and they would just yeah and then you'd they have potential like electives like, that were run sort of outside of that to support the other passions yeah i think so you'd have to have maybe like like special like in primary school you have specialist teachers and they just they're the music teacher but they teach music from prep to six yeah so you'd have like you know your specialist teachers that they would run all the sport and pe from you know prep to 10 where you obviously have a team they're not doing it on their own yeah that'd be a big ask yeah but you'd have a team yeah so you think that by doing that you would create the connection that's lacking at high school definitely and you'd get the you get the parents buy-in back like not that they can be bought i hate the term buy-in but you would get parents back in they'd want to be part of it because they'd know that teacher really well yeah they just have that connection you know and you may teach the kid more than once over the time that they're there and so, yeah, you get this really strong community connection to your school. The teacher feels very connected to their students. They know them really well, but the students also have a very strong connection to the school because they're in the same room every day. Like I remember going in year 7 to 12, it was very depressing. The yeah. rooms were, I mean, I went to a particularly rough school, but the rooms were really sad. Yeah, um, I think that's still mate. Occasionally... Yeah, occasionally a teacher would make an effort to put something on the wall, but pretty quick it would have a dick drawn on it or something, you know, ripped off yeah. it or yeah. something like some graffiti or, you know, it wouldn't last long. Yeah. It just work just never did because no one owned anything. You didn't really have a sense of ownership of the room or any of the work or, yeah. So you want to bring that pride back. Yeah. You want to bring – and the classroom teacher to have a space that is their own where they can put some things up on the walls and create a really safe, positive learning environment that is engaging and full of art and plants and, you know, all the things that they want to fill it with, then they're comfortable and they've created, like you said, that dynamic, that magic, that energy, which is what's missing yeah. in so many schools. It's too clinical or it's too derelict or it's too, you know, empty. I never had a room and so there is an element of displacement I think when you've actually got to consider the space you're in when you're planning your lessons am I in that particular space can I utilize that am I not am I in a place with a projector am I not you know so yeah you're right there is no guarantee really of 
And then you can sometimes come in. I used to teach dance for a while and I'd come in on a wet day and the PE staff would be in there. I was like, okay, so I now have to share this space. I didn't even know you were coming in here. You've taken my equipment or my space or whatever. So there is always that element of displacement, as you say, that you don't feel connected really to a hub or home environment. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think I think creating that space where teachers feel connected as well. It's not just about students feeling connected to their yeah. school, but teachers, I never felt a real ownership of the school really. I was just this teacher and I moved around, like you said, so many spaces. You know, what did I feel really connected to? I didn't I never really put up any work of the kids stuff on the wall. No. Because why would you? Mm. And even if I did, there was one actually, I had a, a high achievers class who were awesome. These kids were amazing. And for the high achievers, they kind of did it. They had one classroom where their English teacher, their science teacher, their maths teacher and their humanities teacher would all go into the one room and they tried to make it so they had one teacher for humanities and English mm. and one teacher for science and maths. And so they kind of had this thing going. So these kids were in the room all the time. And I said to them once, what would you do to this room to make it better? Yeah. Like, would you, do you want the room to be any better? And they were like, oh, we'd paint it a cool color maybe, yeah. or maybe the back wall. Or, and they said, oh, maybe we'd like bring some art in, some paintings or something. And so I said, well, give me something that like one kid took really cool photos. So I was like, give me some stuff that you do. I'll print it. And we'll maybe, I just got some cheap Ikea op shop frames and, I got some paint. The school didn't actually even give me any money to paint the wall, but the gardener was a legend and she had some paint that was all in the shed and she mixed it together to get the color I wanted. Oh. It was like a mint kind of mint nice. paint. So she mixed it up herself and got the color and then she went in there one day with me and we just painted the back wall. Yep. And so the kids were like obsessed. Like yep. they'd gone to the effort of painting this wall, brought in, I think we brought in some plants and and put up some paintings and stuff on the back wall. And, you know, not one, because other classes would share that space, not one kid wrecked it. Yeah. They didn't draw on anything. It was like there was this one cool classroom mm -hmm. and it was, you know, it was enough for the kids to say, hey, like someone actually cares about this space and I'm not going to ruin it. So I thought, imagine a whole school like that. Yeah. I think it's just the effort, isn't it? And it's listening to them. It's the same thing though, whether it's a space, whether it's the task you create, if you listen to them and you invest in them, and you show that you're willing to do that, it goes a long way. Oh, it's massive. It's all about, yeah, it's, it is like I'd say to the pre-service teachers if I could, it's you underestimate the power of a relationship and mm. the fact that those people think you care. Yeah. So you are quite an active member of the Teachergram. Can you describe <laughs> that kind of support and what that sort of world is like to be a part of? It is... Yeah, it's surprising. It's actually very surprising and it's very supportive. So it's an online community yeah. and people actually really help you out. Like I get so yeah. many people just reach out or connect or a lot of opportunities come up through Instagram, through the teaching community, a lot of, you know, really lovely people who teachers are very good at using whatever technology they get given anyway. And I think they've just yeah. taken Instagram, which inherently is just a corporate you know, it's just a thing that people do. Ideally, they just want to push us to shop because then they can get money from those people sponsoring posts or whatever. It's just a company. And yet teachers have yes. sort of like taken that and said, oh, well, let's use it for sharing ideas. And yeah, people are very generous, like really generous with yeah. their time. And I feel like I am too. Like I've had a lot of people, particularly pre-service teachers or people going for jobs or ask for help with their CV or 
people who reach out because I've got some sort of resource that they would like to share and I'm happy to share. I don't charge for anything that I make, any of my resources. And so I just yeah. feel like, and there's a lot of people and even people who do charge, there's nothing wrong with that because they've spent time making yeah. them. And I, I buy them off teachers, pay teachers sometimes and, you know, because that's their that's their time and they've, they've put it in and mm. why not use that instead of spending an hour yeah. making that same sheet, um, you know, I may as well yeah. just buy it. But, yeah, I think it's this community where, they really genuinely do care. A lot of them yeah. really do care and they check yeah. in with you. Like if I've had some, you know, remote learning was tough and I had a lot yeah. of teachers reach out from other states in Australia, anything you want from my teachers, pay teachers stop, just tell me and I'll email it to you. Is there anything I can wow. do? And these are like some of them are like really high profile teachers on Instagram who are busy themselves and have leadership positions or companies or whatever they, they do themselves and they were taking time out to check on me little old Nathan over yeah. here and how I was going and is there anything I can do or do you know of anyone else who might need some help or these people have never met them in person and they're just checking in on me because they and also we get to have a platform like this is amazing to have this platform to speak about education yeah. for teachers because teachers get spoken about like we get politicians talk about us parents talk about us community talks about us we're in the news sometimes. Expectations are added and added and added. But very rarely do you actually hear a teacher's voice yes. about anything. And we're kind of almost encouraged not to because mm. we don't want to make the government look bad or we don't want to make our school look bad and we don't want to make ourselves yes. look bad. or we don't. Wanna... So it's like we kind of get encouraged not to even speak about our job, even though there's like so many good things about it. We actually have this amazing job. And so I really appreciate the fact that, you know, being on Instagram has led me now to you know, connect with you and now yeah. here I am talking about education or and having more, net, you know, and Instagram has given that to teachers. It's given us a platform. I'm sharing ideas with teachers all over the world. I can see into the classrooms yes. of literally thousands and thousands of teachers and see what's on their wall or see how they manage behaviour or how they've organised their flex seating or, yeah. you know, that display that they just put up or that horrible day that they just had or they, you know, quickly send me a message, you know, or like a story or say, hey, feeling exactly the same, yeah. keep going, you're doing a good job. Where else do you get that? Yeah. Yeah, so I really, I love it. Well, I used to be, especially in the classroom, head down, like, bum up, doing my work and you'd sort of just see me running from class to class and there is actually a, a student that I taught years ago is now a staff member at the school. And she's been listening to the podcast and has followed me on Instagram. And what she said was that she didn't know what my actual beliefs about education were. She knew what I was like as a teacher. She knew that I could run a class, disseminate information. I tried really hard to connect to the students and all of that. But she's like, I didn't know that you believed this much about this or you wanted to know this much about education or you wanted to ensure that this was going on in your classroom and she actually made the comment too about another staff member I had on who's in leadership, who I know and I've worked with as a colleague, but she's only ever seen in leadership. And she said, I didn't know that she believed the things that I believed. So she's actually yeah. seeing the person behind the role, which I don't think we often get to see. No. And it's funny too, because it's, it does put you out in the open. And so there is an element of it might be easier just to not have a teacher gram because if you do, obviously there's a lot of positivity, but then there's also people could, particularly parents, parents can see you, parents can follow you, parents can message you on there. Like you're open, students can follow you, ex-students or whatever. 
So you're very much an open book yep. in many ways. And some teachers manage that by having it set private so they don't you know, accept particular followers or that's fine. Like everyone can do their own version of whatever. And you have to obviously go by your school's social media policy as well. But I think there's a real benefit though because I feel like so many parents, and again, this is primary school, so I don't know how it's going secondary necessarily yet. I'd have to go back into secondary and try it again. But society has changed. We're very much a, much a connected technology-based community. It's very normalized. And so if you have a profile on some sort of kind of social media and you are talking about education and it's giving you a platform where you can say, hey, this is really bothering me about teaching at the moment or can I just do it, give a shout out to this or can I get some feedback on this or that or does anyone have any ideas about whatever? People are seeing that you're actually living or practicing what you preach like yeah. you really live your job yeah and so yeah I think people see that you're very authentic and genuine yeah I agree and I, I do think that there has to be especially at high school the boundaries have to be very clear I mean I personally am very careful about putting on like pictures of my kids and things like that that's not the place for me to disseminate that kind of information yep. I've but it's I think more because I'm a high school teacher and I'm teaching the older year levels that I think I need to protect myself even more but mm. to, I talk about this all the time about the fear around the internet, the fear around social media and how we're so scared to teach it in schools. And I've been very scared for a long time to be very open online, but I do, I do it very particularly, I hide behind, hide's not, maybe not the right word, but I use it as a, as my role as an educator. It's not a personal thing yeah. for me, the, in, yeah. the Instagram, I shouldn't even say that Instagram is not personal. It's purely about <laughs> you know, connection with, you know, amazing educators like you hearing about programs that are going on that I didn't even know about and trying to bridge that gap between primary and secondary and, and create these citizens that can move into the world with far less effort than I think is going on at the moment. I think that there's too much mm. that's not kind of connecting, but you do have to be careful for sure. I think there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely that that element, but I think if you're sensible and you're not stupid about how you use it or you know, you're professional in the way that you mm. talk about your job. And I don't really like following accounts that are specifically just about negativity when it's about teaching because there's a lot of, and I'm not saying like everyone complains on Instagram and I've definitely been like yeah. report writing is yeah. killing me, whatever. Or I'm stuck in a PL online on yes. first aid <laughs> and I just want to die. So I have definitely done yeah. that and it's, that's fine. But I think also, yeah, making sure that your profile is more positive than it is negative like you would to any student in your class your conversation to them is more positive than it is ever negative yeah and just keeping it very light yeah. and helpful is important but yeah the people i've connected with and there's so many people and even some teachers i didn't know they actually teach very close yeah. to me and so we're creating like communities of practice mm -hmm. they only teach down the road and now i actually yeah you know, one of these teachers I didn't know before this, and I actually had met once, but I didn't know that that was the person that she had in okay. Instagram or anything. Not until later that I connected this, but she has been just so supportive. Then her daughter was in VCE and was like, hey, can I just get a, like some extra perspective on some essays? Or So I, you know, get some feedback, and it was just like this really great relationship. And then I was in remote learning, and it was getting pretty hard that yeah, second. of course. That second term of remote learning, it was really killing me and she could tell and because I wasn't online much or, or whatever, it sort of changed. And so I just opened my emails one day and there's 
a voucher for a coffee shop down the road from where I work Aww. from her and her daughter just saying thanks for all the help with the essay but also just checking in and yeah just reminding you doing a good job I'm like this is a person yes I don't work with I don't know in the sense that I don't see them every day in person and yet because of all this interaction and support and it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool that I connect you with real people. It's really cool. And I think that it yeah. Instagram is nice in that it seems much more authentic in the teacher community, I feel, than perhaps some of the other communities. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But it's probably teachergram is probably so boring to people who are not teachers. <laughs> Absolutely. It must be like a while with you. Also, how does this teacher have like a hundred and seventeen thousand followers? Yeah. But it goes to it's show like, yeah. there's a big community out there. I couldn't believe it when I first went on there. Like I literally went yeah. on thinking, oh, I wonder if there's any educators on here. But yeah, I'm like, yeah. what? This person has 150,000 followers as a primary school teacher. What yeah. is happening? Yeah, getting paid by like Target to put stuff in their classroom yes. as an influencer. And you're like, what yes. is going on? I here? know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Last two questions for you because I have okay. been taking up yeah. so much of your yeah, time. Right so- no, no, no. This is, this is fun. I've always, always like, like a, something I told you before, I um. Like drive around in my car listening to podcasts all the time. Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah. And I I'd wonder what it'd be like. And I'd say this. Now I'm actually here, probably not saying anything that I thought I would actually say. It's been pretty good, anyway. Nathan. You shouldn't short you should not <laughs> shortchange yourself. But the second last question <laughs> I want to ask you is what are some of the greatest lessons that you've ever learnt? Oh, so here's a good one. It is education is about learning what you didn't even know you didn't know and that's actually a really good metaphor for life like quote for life too but a good lesson for me was educational being open to learning is actually about being so open that you have to admit you don't even know what you don't know yet and so as soon as you learn it you just realize there's more you don't know yep it's not like you learn and you learn and you add and you add it's actually like you do you add and add but the more you add, the more you realize there's just worlds and worlds and worlds of information that you're in your lifetime, you're not going to be able to access or learn all of. So you have to just accept the fact that there's more to know than you'll ever know. Mm-hmm. And so you have to just from that have empathy and kindness first yeah. because you just don't know. Yeah. You just don't know. So I think that's a really big lesson for me. Oh, other big lessons, obviously from my sister mm. being disabled, a big lesson has been don't take anything for granted. Mm because not everybody has what you have and not everyone has the opportunities that you have. Uh, and there, there's obviously people who have more opportunity or more money or more status or whatever it is than you, definitely, but it's not about that. It's about making the most of what you have been given or what you have in your life at that moment um, and mm. then from that making the most you can out of it. Yeah. So I think, yeah. That would be some of my biggest lessons. It's funny you mentioned that. My mentor, Karen, whose episode you've listened to, she yeah. always used to say to me, if everybody put their problems in a bowl, you'd end up going back in for your own problems at the end of the day. Oh, like yeah. You actually, you think that if I just had that person's life, if I just had that person's way of thinking, if I just had that person's intellect, she said, but you know what, Laura, if you put, if everyone put their problems in a bowl, you'd go back in for your own. Yeah. And if you want anything, like a lot of the podcasts I listen to are all about sort of like not just obviously education but also about success or life or living in dream life or, you know, working towards your goals or, you know, a lot of this kind of, it's not self-help but it's sort of, yeah, taking control of your life, I guess. Yeah. But, yeah, it's all about don't spend the small stuff. Don't make a massive deal out of the truck who's in front of you on the way to school because you're late or don't crack it because – these moments, there's so much beauty going on around you. There's so much 
you're alive and you're here and are you going to remember it in a year's time? If you're not going to remember it, then don't worry about it. Just don't even yeah, yeah. let it go. And that's yeah. good for teaching too because teaching, can you have those days where you're like, oh, ripping my hair out or the kids are killing me and so wet day yes. timetable and I'm losing it and I've got no time, reports are due and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, do you ever remember any of the years you've written reports? No. They just, like you do it and it's gone and it's like, woo, best thing ever, it's done. And then you move on. So yeah. is it really that big a deal? No, it's not. I reckon by the second year or third year that I was a teacher, I stopped worrying about reports because I thought, you know, every year I write these reports, every year I have the same amount of time to do it and every year it gets done. So I'm just going to have faith that it's going to unfold as it needs to because it has every other year. Yeah, and don't compare yourself to others either. Like when you're at school and someone's like, done my reports, and it's like week six oh. of term four. I'm like, I <laughs> don't know how you did that, but I haven't even finished assessing. Like I've got heaps <laughs> to go. So yeah. yeah, don't compare. No. Last question. Okay. What are your hopes for education in the future? I just want... It never to be uncool to be smart. I think mm. I think it should be, you know, in Australia, unfortunately, this like this that tall poppy type yeah. syndrome, and I hate it. But I also want it to be where there's not really a such thing as one person is smarter than the other because it's actually mm. like you're all just learning. And the more we learn about our brains and that neural plasticity, and we know how learning works, and we know how the growth mindset and positive attitude and how meditation all these things that can actually just accelerate learning or you know change the projection of this person's learning journey it actually comes down to so much attitude and so i just want everyone to see it's not like you do or don't have a maths brain it's not like you're good at reading or writing or you're not it's just practice and every single person is the same obviously there's some learning difficulties or intellectual disabilities or things that would impact that but essentially, every single person can learn and be whatever they want to be. That is actually the truth. Mm. You can you can genuinely mm. learn whatever you want to learn if you're willing to put in the time and effort. And you can be whatever you want to be if you're willing to put in the time and effort and take opportunities when they come and do it before you're ready. That's a really big lesson. I should have said that before. Yeah. Start before you're yeah. ready. Do it. Do it. Just do it. And it's like what I felt when I did that role at the department. I did not feel ready, but I just did it. You know, and there's been a thousand times in my life when I've done that. Yeah. And that's how you learn. That's how you get better. And that's how you realize, oh, there's so much more I didn't know. And now I was scared about this role, but it's actually not that big because look at all these other roles or other things I could be doing. So, yeah, just just see life as a, a journey. And that's what I hope for education, that students go to school and they're just like, you know what, I'm just, I'm just here to learn as much as I can. And I don't have to love it all, but I also have to just – put in the time and effort and I'll be good at whatever I want to be good at it's not like I have limits on what I can learn or what I'm going to be good at or because I'm a male or a female or whatever I have to like a certain subject more or less I just want all of that to be done away with and people can just be good at whatever they want to be good at and do a job that they would like to do what I love so much about that comment is the idea of the want I think that we haven't given students the power I think it's coming I think COVID's actually created an opportunity for that in a way because we've seen that there are actually other ways to learn. If we can just give the kids the power to do what they want. Yeah, more voice, more agency, more leadership opportunities and just to take control of their learning. Obviously, Mm. there's a real push at the moment for student voice and agency, but ideally it's just about 
saying, hey, what do you want to learn about? And then do you know that you can actually do whatever you want? Like, do you realize you can learn absolutely anything you want to learn or be good at anything? Like, do you, do you understand that? Like, as, a, as a human, you can literally be good at anything. Mm-hmm. There, are, there is such thing as like a little bit of talent here or there or someone tends to be slightly more sporty or slightly more book-minded maybe. But that does not mean that that sporty person could not have a doctorate in literature. And it doesn't mean that that person who's very good at mathematics can't also really love poetry. It doesn't mean that. It never, and it never did mm. a long time ago. And we've sort of like developed society where we put all these limits on, yeah. oh, you know, I don't have a maths brain. I'll, I'll never understand that. So, yeah, I just want that to go away and people can just be and do whatever they want to be and do. I love it. Thank you so much for giving me all your time, Nathan. And I hope that you listen back to this. Yeah, no worries. Amazing. When you're driving in the car, you go, yes, I nailed that. <laughs> I don't know. I'll be like, I sound like Kermit the Frog. I don't know why. <laughs> I've also had hay fever, so I probably sound like I'm like sniffing in the background or something. You don't It'll be awful. I'll hear it. You don't I'll hear it when I'm seeing the car. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for giving me all of your insight. No worries. See you, Laura. See ya. Ooh.